Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. Delight because all the engineers and the scientific personnel have gathered here because we are about to witness a historic moment, and now we have realized that actually now from the camera and the footage captured by Shanghai, we could see that the driver is drawing nearer, and in a moment we are about to have the. Docking and the connection of the two submersibles by the sea bed, and that's a news broadcast from CGTN, China's overseas broadcaster, from March 2020. It's showing pictures of China's deepwater submersible 10 kilometers beneath the ocean surface, the deepest point in the world's oceans, the Mariana Trench. The submersible is named Fundoljer, officially translated as Striver. But the literal meaning is closer to the one who struggles or even fights. And today we're talking about the competition for the world's deepest depths in the latest of our series about China beyond the ends of the earth. To talk about China's ambitions for the world's seabeds, we're joined by two guests: Tiffany Ma, the senior director of Bow Group Asia, and Tabitha Mallory, the CEO and founder of China Ocean Institute. Tamitha, let's start with you.、Um, I guess there's a clue about China's motivations in the language that it uses. The official news agency says that it's exploring what it calls the treasure map of the deep sea. What sort of treasure is Beijing interested in? So it's actually a pretty complex space.、Um, literally, there are a lot of different resources in the deep seabed.、Um, there are really kind of three different types of deposits. There are polymetallic sulfides, which occur around hydrothermal vents,、um, like kind of like underwater volcanoes,、uh, and then there's also polymetallic nodes. Um, and these are made up of a bunch of different metals. And then you've got cobalt-rich ferromanganese. Crusts,、um, and in all, this provides resources like copper, nickel, zinc, lead, manganese, cobalt, lithium, yttrium, diamonds, platinum, gold, and silver. So, really, a lot of potential for the seabed, and that is what most people are interested in、um, when they're talking about、uh, their plans for deep sea mining.、Um, and of course, these all of these metals are important, especially for our new technologies. So, you know, our our cell phones, our computers, electric vehicle batteries,、um, even technologies like、um, you know wind,、uh, solar panels, things like that.、Um, so, all these. You know, a lot of these technologies are technologies we're going to need、um, as we transition away from fossil fuel dependency to help with climate change.、Um, but there are definitely some trade-offs when we think about where we're going to get、uh, these resources as inputs、um, for these new technologies.、Um, and so, I think a lot of people are aware that、um, on-land mining of these types of minerals is really destructive, and there are a lot of negative environmental implications、um, of mining on land. And so, you know, a lot of people think the sea is a potential kind of complement to the land-based sources.、Um, 
but I think it's important to remember that there are a lot of um, vulnerable species in the in the seabed that we have to think about too. So, like thinking about that treasure, I mean, long long time listeners of the show would know that Louisa is a huge fan of of sea cucumbers, both in and out of the water. <laughs> I mean, can you maybe give us some of the wonder of the deep sea? Like, what what are your sort of most favorite magical creatures that live way way down on the seabed? I don't know if I can actually give you some good example. I mean, maybe the the anglerfish. The anglerfish is really awesome. Um, and there have been some really great Halloween costumes of anglerfish. Um, so that's probably my favorite. So the anglerfish, that's the one that has like a big light out the front of it to attract fish, yeah? Exactly. And then when it mates, the, the smaller male anglerfish attaches to the female. And then essentially the female anglerfish just like absorbs the male's body into her own body. <laughs> wow, doesn't even, bother, doesn't even bother we eat him, just absorbs him. <laughs> exactly. Wow, that's great. <laughs> Tiffany, have you got any favourites? Um, Probably the mythical creatures that we're yet to discover at this point. <laughs> I mean, is that a possibility? Do you think, you know, seriously, is, is there life down there that we, we maybe haven't discovered yet? Because there's always this cliche about, we know less about the deep sea than the moon, which is total nonsense because the, the moon is a dead rock um, and the deep sea is full of life. Um, I mean, is it possible that there are things down there, scientifically valuable things that we haven't discovered yet? Oh, yeah. There, uh, scientists think that there are really a bunch of species. It's really hard to, to estimate how many species we have not discovered because of the lack of knowledge, the lack of ability to explore the deep seabed. I mean, it's so deep. Um, but uh, I, I think a, a good example of, um, you know, the potential is uh, some of the research that has been done around the Clarion-Clipperton zone, which is in the Pacific. That's where a lot of the, um, you know, the seabed contracts have been given out for exploratory research for mining. Um, some of the marine biologists have done research there, and they found, um, of the, the species that they found down there, 70 to 90% were new to science. And a lot of those were actually not just species, um, but also new genera. So like kind of that, you know, like above species um, classification. Uh, so, and that's the area that we know the most about and um, for the deep seabed. So there's really a lot of potential to discover uh, other species. And um, part of the challenge is a lot of these species are microscopic marine species that we're used to, you know, that are closer to the surface of the ocean, um, you know, like just the, the fish and dolphins and whales and, you know, um, all those kinds of larger animals. Um, you know, it's very different in the deep seabed. Um, those kinds of animals often couldn't survive in the deep seabed. Um, because the light doesn't get down there, that also means that it's very hard for species to survive. But despite there not being a lot of sunlight um, at the bottom of, of the ocean, uh, the, there's a lot of life around the hydrothermal vents, for example, because, you know, those actually add some warmth that makes it possible for these species to survive. But a lot of these species are microscopic. So it's, you know, you, you really have to, you can't just spot them with your normal eye. You can't access them without a lot of really, you know, advanced technology. So it's, it's not necessarily that easy to study them. So, I mean, regardless of that biodiversity in the deep sea, we're seeing this real focus on deep sea mining. Um, China, as recently as mid-March this year, said it was going to increase its efforts, deep sea mining. It called it a new frontier of competition on science, technology, resources and industry. Um, it talked about how essential all these metals are 
for the renewable energy revolution. But when it comes to that sort of strategic competition in deep sea mining, is it correct that China's actually lagging behind the West? On deep sea mining, I mean, we've kind of seen this as a progression of Chinese interest, right? We've seen it in the 12th and 13th five-year plans that really sort of show their intent to exploit seabed for resources and Right now, the deep seabed mining is still very much in still the exploratory phase, as Tabitha mentioned, but we do see that China is technologically behind some Western countries. So when we talk about the resources that Tabitha mentioned, you know, for example, the polymetallic nodules, I mean, those exist at like 4,000, 5,000 meters deep. And right now, China does not have the capacity to drill that deeply. They are commissioning um, sort of a new ultra deep seabed uh, drill ship, which apparently is going to go as deep as 10,000 meters. Um, and that's slated for a 2024 launch. But currently they are still lagging behind Western countries, Japan and South Korea in how deep they're able to go in, in terms of exploiting uh, deep seabed mining. I mean, one thing I've noticed amongst um, marine scientists is a lot of them initially were pretty ambivalent about deep sea mining, that they would kind of we thought, look, yeah, we need them for renewables. Maybe it can be done sustainably. But once it's actually started to happen in the Clarion-Clipperton um, zone, pretty well all of them have gone, oh, my God, this is horrific. We, we, we just can't do this. There's no way to do this sustainably. I mean, you, you guys talk to Chinese marine scientists. What, what, what are they thinking? So one of the issues with extracting the polymetallic nodes from the seafloor is that you essentially have to suck them up with a vacuum hose and that greatly disturbs the seabed and so your you know your your chances of damaging sea life are pretty are pretty high and they haven't and, got anything more advanced than that it's literally <laughs> just a big thing that sucks up everything yeah well i guess it sounds like this um the drill that tiffany mentioned might be a different type of technology but the the issue today is you know so even even though china has some really interesting submersibles they're they're not really that helpful when it comes to picking up polymetallic nodes off the seabed because you really have to like suck them up. I mean, really the industry is not in a place where any of this is commercially viable yet. To be commercially viable, you would have to collect 360 wet tons of nodules per hour for 250 days per year. So no one's come close to that. So the the work that they've done already, you know, in some of the exploratory excavations, uh, they haven't extracted that many. It's it's been very little that you know any of of these companies or countries have been able to actually pull up. Um, but yes, when you you know if you're talking about expanding on a bigger scale, um, there are really important implications for the seabed, both in terms of the harm you could cause to the you know the life in the seabed. Um, uh, as well as the um, function that the seabed provides as a carbon store. Um, and, you know, the science is still not 100% sure how all of that would work even. You know, like, would it really release a lot of carbon into the atmosphere? We're not really sure because it's, you know, it's so far down. What's been really interesting to me in looking at these issues is not so much that particular countries have a certain stance uh, on seabed mining, but that there's so many different groups within, you know, lots of different countries that have kind of shared mindsets about it. So I think what's really important to think about is the, you know, the interests of companies and the potentially vested interests that they have and the um, kind of the ear of our politicians that they have uh, and the asymmetrical information that they have uh, about these technologies. Um, you know, but then you've got 
environmental groups who are really concerned about this um, and, you know, the, the potential for damage that this could cause. You also have, you know, people who I think uh, have a very balanced um, view, which is that, you know, we, we do need these technologies, um, uh, but, you know, can we do it? You know, so, okay, fine, maybe we need to actually excavate from this, the seabed, but can we do it still in an environmentally sustainable way? So can we, um, you know, just be careful and pragmatic about it? Uh, and so, you know, when I'm thinking about the, the Chinese views on this, and this is, you know, putting aside the, the government, because I think they have a certain perspective, but I think in China, you, you, you have people who are kind of of all these different persuasions and have all these different views as well. And I mean, I guess China's interests in the deep seas, it's really not just about deep sea mining. Um, I was reading that they have put listening devices deep inside the Marianas Trench. Um, Tiffany, what are these listening out for? And what kind of role do these deep seas play in, in security when it comes to China's mindset? Yeah, so I think the listening devices, I mean, I think they reflect sort of a broader effort at establishing Chinese presence, um, especially in uh, deep seas um, and around the maritime commons, sort of further and further away um, from China. So I think it reflects sort of China's intent to grow as a military power. Um, you know, in recent years, we've seen very clear intentions that China wants to pursue its strategic interest in the maritime domain globally. So we're talking about far beyond its shores, far beyond the South China Sea, and far beyond even the Asia Pacific region. And it's very much building a set of capabilities that expands their economic and scientific interests, but also with the military capabilities to sort of back up and protect these interests. So if we think about some of China's sort of broader maritime interests, you know, we're talking about its massive shipping fleet, its very active involvement in maritime commerce. Uh, you know, we're talking about um, sort of strategic banners such as the uh, maritime, uh, the Polar Silk Road, but also sort of this idea of the string of pearls where it's establishing um, bases essentially around the Indian Ocean. It's participating in counter piracy operations, you know, off of Africa. It has, it's very much reliant on, on undersea infrastructure such as undersea cables, for example. And, you know, all these activities we do see kind of commensurate with China's growing military capability as well, um, especially with um, it's the PLA Navy's ability to sort of project power further and further abroad. So, you know, this could potentially bring China into more conflict with other countries. Um, you know, for example, as they have more economic and commercial activities in, in places far away from their territory, you know, is that going to lead to greater military presence if uh, there's a potential contingency or if they need to do even a non-military operations like um, evacuation in the event of a disaster. So I think it having the listening post, I mean, I think I see it as all part of this greater infrastructure that China is establishing for maintaining its presence and awareness of what's going on in global maritime commons. So, I mean, are they listening for submarines or is it more of almost like a flag on the moon, but at the bottom of the sea? <laughs> Well, they've already planted a flag at the bottom of the South China Sea. Well, at the bottom of the sea? Yeah. Really? Um, I well, I don't know if it's like the bottom bottom, but they there was a flag that was planted. I don't know how far down they got. <laughs> I am not sure exactly what they're listening for. We are kind of seeing some interesting writings emerge uh, within China in terms of 
um, security in the deep sea. So fairly recently, there was an article that was written by a scholar at the Academy of Military Sciences, um, you know, who talked about the deep sea as an operational domain of great strategic significance, and one that would be kind of driven by AI technology and a manned underwater vehicles. Um, so for what that's worth, I mean, I think, you know, having things like listing posts would be sort of one step towards having building more of that capability and the awareness of undersea capabilities. But again, this is pretty nascent and I would imagine a lot of it is for sort of maritime domain awareness. I mean, just in the intersection between the civil and the military, there was this extraordinary letter last week by the outgoing president of um, the Federated States of Micronesia, um, David Panuelo, who wrote about um, this extraordinary encounter that he'd had with Chinese research vessels where basically they they told the, the their coast guard to get lost and and not to pry into their activities in the waters of their own country and he effectively then banned them i mean is this sort of activity um something unique to china or is everyone kind of doing this this sort of stuff this blurring of lines between what's research and what's military yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think we do see that China's engaged in a lot of scientific activities, especially in the maritime commons. I mean, I think in the Arctic, for example, they have a research station in Svalbard, and they're producing a lot of research on uh, much needed research on the maritime commons. But at the same time, I mean, people argue that this has dual use, right? Like if you're mapping and surveying certain maritime spaces, yes, that creates scientific knowledge, but that's also gives you some operational experience that gives you some intelligence to be used in by your military. So I think at this time, it's unclear as to what is exactly civilian and what is military. But I think there's a lot of concern that some of these civilian activities could feed into military activities. I think, you know, in addition to those pragmatic uses of science technology, you know, I think there's also an element of status and prestige, too. You know, I think China, you know, like wants to be seen as one of the leaders in science and technology. And, um, you know, that, that's, that can also be a deterrent for other countries, too. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that every, you know, like technology is being used for, for other purposes. But, you know, I think the Chinese... Um, see that it's, you know, it's better to have the technological ability um, to, to do something if you want to have it. I was interested in the kind of propaganda value of these deep sea research. I mean, the fact that they sent down this Fundoja and at the same time they designed a underwater camera that would go and then they sent all these pictures back which were all over CCTV news showing this submersible parked, and they used that word, parked at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. And it was just really interesting because I think we tend to have a sort of fascination for space and all the rockets that go up there, but we're not as interested in the deep seas. Yet it seemed China's propaganda is paying sort of similar amounts of attention. Is there something that we can read from that? Is that to do with... Uh, the, the, the value in showing China's science and technology capability? Or is it about kind of Star Wars like desire to just occupy all types of spaces wherever they are, or kind of a bit of a, a bit of everything? Tiffany? I mean, I'm hoping they didn't stream the Fenoja for like the 10 straight hours that it was at the bottom of the trench, because I don't, I don't know what you could have possibly seen. Um, look, I think, as Tabitha mentioned, there is definitely an element of uh, prestige, and I think that's right. Um, and I think it's 
also part of China's sort of more global ambition to be more engaged in the maritime commons to kind of understand them, to essentially shape their developments, to have their stake, to make sure that, you know, they are preserving their own interests in all of this. And I think there is some prestige to being a leader in that. um, And that kind of shows off their scientific capability. But I think it's really about kind of trying to preserve their strategic interests. You know, for example, in the Arctic, you know, their sort of nightmare scenario is that all the littoral states, the Arctic states were kind of divided up like a melon, I think is the analogy that they used. Um, So I think it's, I think for them, it's really about, you know, planting a flag if, if, even if it's, uh, you know, not a literal flag. Yeah, maybe like kind of establishing themselves as a big player in, in these games, not necessarily about, you know, taking control of, you know, every geographical space. Um, but, you know, I also think in addition to what Tiffany said, um, the reason why they were broadcasting this to the domestic audience is because, you know, it's it's um, a symbol of national pride for them that, you know, China is, you know, has the same kind of cutting edge technology as, you know, other developed countries. You know, there's an effort domestically in China to craft the consciousness of its citizenry of China as a global maritime power um, that is on par with the other maritime powers. Um, so, that, you know, I think they want um, they want to excite their citizenry. They want, you know, more people working on these industries. They want their citizenry to defend these interests, ultimately, if needed. Um, but they just, in general, want awareness among their own people about China's capabilities and, you know, like where it is in the world. And I mean, I guess that's the thing is like the Mariana Trench, scientifically, there's not a lot of value, as Tiffany was saying, to sitting down there because there's no sea vents, there's no life down there, and it's completely dark. But a lot of the other places that the Fundojo went to, um, say the sea vents and so forth, do have scientific value. I mean, have they been using that for propaganda purposes also, just or, or even to get the citizenry excited and pumping out all these? Look, we've discovered these new species. We found these new things unknown to, you know, mankind in the in the uh, Indian Ocean. Has that been going on as well as this big, you know, headline? We got to the deepest spot in the ocean. I, I would say to a certain extent, but I, you know, I think there is. Uh, some emphasis on extremes, you know, like being able to, you know, to to set the record, to do the hardest thing, you know, that is something that I think there's, you know, they, they really want to showcase that part of the science and, and technology. Um, and I, I think, you know, the other discoveries, you know, those are, you know, like those details, I think are certainly available, but not, you know, like, I don't know if it has the same amount of consumption, you know, like by the, the domestic population as these like, you know, beating these extremes uh, might. I mean, all of this deep sea exploration, it's really expensive. I wonder if also part of it is building support for expenditure on this. You know, we know the world's best known deep sea explorer is James Cameron, the filmmaker from Titanic who spends millions on deep sea research. I mean, how is China funding all these expeditions and all this research? I think that's one of China's challenges is that pretty much all of its deep sea initiatives are state funded. So there, there aren't really private interests that are competing in this space. And, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar when you don't have private interests, you know, you don't have as much competition, you don't necessarily have um, companies working together and, you know, kind of innovating together. If you only have state directed innovation, you know, it's, it's, um, you're, you can, 
you know, miss out on, um, I think, some some potential developments. And so I think, you know, that, that's one of the, the hindrances for China is um, that it all is all state led. So it's not like the space industry where they've opened it up to the private sector. I mean, is it because the private sector just doesn't see any money in it? Is that is that why they haven't been drawn in? Or is it sort of has the state said, look, this is our thing. We look after this because there's a territorial dimension to it. That's a, Yeah, that's a good question. I don't I don't really know. I mean, I think, you know, like it is so technologically complex that, you know, to get the funding that you would need to start up any type of deep sea exploration, it might just be that it's cost prohibitive. Tapitha, one thing I can't resist asking you is a lot of your research has been around China's quest for for sea life of all forms, I mean, fish, squid, krill, the whole the whole lot, and this incredible distant water fishing fleet that it has that goes everywhere from the Galapagos to Antarctica and, and everywhere. I mean, is uh, China's demand for seafood starting to have an impact in the deep sea? I mean, are there creatures down there, to pull it bluntly, that Chinese consumers want to eat? Um, is, is that a, a sort of a frontier that China's exploring, a gastronomic frontier, if you like? Not really yet. I mean, most of the species in the deep sea are, you know, they're, we don't even know enough about the species in the deep sea, first of all. I mean, we haven't discovered so many of them. Um, and, and so I think, you know, like any commercial viability is far, far away from now. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that there, you know, in addition to the deep sea mining interests, resource interests you know, like on the high seas are also a really important factor to consider and one of China's, you know, big motivations. Um, And so there are some, you know, more pelagic, um, not benthic deep sea species, but more pelagic species on the high seas, like tuna, squid, um, that China is very interested uh, in in exploiting. Um, And what's been interesting, I think, is the case of China and squid, because squid is not very regulated in the international system. The South Pacific Regional Fisheries Management Organization now has some measures to regulate squid in in the Pacific Ocean. But for the most part, we don't have the same management structure for squid that we do for tuna. Tuna has a pretty good system all over the world. Um, It's a patchwork system. There are problems with the system. Um, There are a lot of problems with the system. but uh, at least there is, for the most part, some type of organization that, that regulates um, tuna um, around the world. But we don't see that for, for squid. And so China is trying to move into you know, these spaces that have not been very well regulated yet, um, that have not really been the target of a lot of um, fishing effort and effort to make space for itself and for its own fishing interests. Tiffany, I was actually going to ask you about regulation because that was one of the um, characteristics that we were talking about in the space episode that China was really utilizing these kind of, I wouldn't even call them loopholes, you sort of voids of regulation. And in fact, almost putting investment in these areas before the regulations are, are formulated. Are we seeing that those kind of similar forces driving China's actions uh, when it comes to the, the sea? UNCLOS stands for UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. So I think when it comes to the sea, we do have some regulations, you know, in terms of international treaties, such as UNCLOS and some regional agreements as well. To me, the question here is really, do we think that China is sort of challenging the established rules and orders and norms? um, Or 
is it sort of exploiting uh, perhaps, you know, loopholes, as you said, or perhaps a lack of rules and norms in some of these areas. So I think what tends to happen now is that we view a lot of these activities through the lens that China is sort of challenging the international order. So, you know, we do have uh, sort of evidence such as, you know, on uh, some unclosed regulation of freedom of navigation, for example, um, and their non-adherence to the arbitral tribunal findings in the South China Sea. And that's sort of evidence that says that China may present a threat to navigation in the South China Sea and also to the broader global commons, you know, by um, not abiding by these uh, regulations and rules, if you will. But we do see in sort of other spaces where um, while China is trying to close off commons sort of in the South China Sea, obviously a very short-sighted move. And there's sort of a point of tension, right? Because as Tabitha said, they're trying to be a global maritime power, um, but its actions very close to home are very parochial and attempted at creating exclusivity at the odds of these regulations. But uh, in other parts of the world, um, they are sort of using these regulations to justify and legitimize its interests and actions. So there's a little bit of a tension there. So for example, let's go to the Arctic. You know, China is trying to be part of this Arctic governance structure mechanism. It's trying to, it's become an observer state at the, observer party rather at the Arctic Council, but it's also sort of creating these new means to rationalize their own participation. So its designation of itself as a near Arctic state, I mean, that's something that's rather new. And I'm not exactly sure that the Arctic countries would consider China to be a near Arctic state. So that's kind of a way that they're kind of getting around some of these regulations to justify sort of their own greater participation. In other parts of the maritime commons, we're seeing that they're trying to sort of shape um, the rules and regulations, if you will. Um, in Antarctica, China is a member, consultative member of the um, Antarctic Treaty framework, um, and it fully sort of participates in that. Um, but at the same time, it's trying to push ideas through it, right? Like it's trying to push this um, creating maritime protected areas in in the Antarctic that hasn't gotten a lot of support from other member countries as well. Well, yeah, I think what Tiffany said is right. Like the South China Sea, they have a very different attitude about that. They don't really agree with the interpretation that other countries have about the South China Sea. I mean, they see that as their own waters. And and so farther afield, you know, China is, is more likely to stay within the whatever, whatever international agreement or, you know, framework um, that they're dealing with. Uh, and and voice its dissent, you know, through the pathways that that framework allots for, if that makes sense. One thing I think, you know, like a lot of people, especially in China, point out is that, I mean, th- there's a lot of, you know, varying interpretation of freedom of navigation in China, of course, that differs with, you know, like most of the, like the consensus of the world. But China has at least signed and ratified UNCLOS, unlike the U.S., you know, you could argue that China is kind of investing in the global system by, especially for, you know, like a lot of these environmental treaties that the U.S. does not participate in. You know, China is at least, you know, maybe trying to change things from within um, that, that framework. 
And I mean, the one thing we had recently that does seem to be a bit of a game changer is this um, agreement on marine biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction or the BBNJ, I think it's called, which is very little talked about, but it seems to be the most significant environmental legislation since since the Paris uh, Agreement. China did seem to play a role in this. Um, and I mean, what kind of role did it play and, and what sort of impact do you think this, um, this agreement is going to have? So... I think the really interesting part of BB&J is that there are actually a lot of similarities to deep sea mining. There has been an interest in deep sea mining for, I mean, really going back to the 19th century, but for practical purposes, just the last few decades. UNCLOS actually got held up by a lot of the discussion about deep sea mining. This is really the reason why the U.S. has not signed on or really ratified um, UNCLOS is because of deep sea mining. And then the implementation agreement for UNCLOS was also kind of changed because of, of these issues. And so the International Seabed Authority, you know, is the organization that the U.N. Um, created to, to manage and regulate seabed mining. And so, in, but, you know, it, it, that, um, it really only dealt with the seabed. You know, like a big part of BB&J is regulating marine genetic resources. So I actually see them as, you know, somewhat comparable issues um, because you, you have some of the same challenges. They're, they're different too, but you have some of the same challenges in deep sea mining as you do with marine genetic resources. And um, those challenges are how do you equitably distribute the benefits of um, you know, using these technologies that are so complex and expensive that only developed countries can really, you know, have them. Um, and, you know, like, how do you do this in a way that's not environmentally destructive and in a way that benefits landlocked countries, for example, or countries that are developing and don't have these technologies. You know, for seabed mining, the companies and countries that have exploratory licenses are, of course, all the, you know, really developed countries. And it's also true with marine genetic resources. In 2018, there was a study that that indicated that 98% of patents for marine genetic resources were held by 10 countries. And one company, just you know, this one German company alone held 47% of those patents. Um, so, so really, it's it's not just the marine genetic resources. There's also parts of BB&J that deal with, um, you know, developing protected areas, marine reserves, and marine, marine protected areas um, for the high seas. The one other thing that they have in common, BB&J has in common with um, the seabed mining, is technology transfer too. That's that's another thing that BB&J um, deals with as well. So ISA is also trying to develop a rule book in terms of environmental assessment. So ISA being the International Seabed Authority? Yeah. Um, and so BB&J also has one of their pillars is environmental assessment. So they just passed this final agreement. They finally hammered it out. But uh, you know, countries have to sign on to it and ratify it. So I think that'll, that'll probably take a while. But I think it's going to be really interesting to see how you know, this new treaty interacts with you know, the, the seabed mining authority um, and how those interests, you know, are, are maybe in tension with each other, how some of the, the kind of the, the same issues across both um, industries, you know, like how that resonates with countries. So I think we're still in early stages, but it's, it's kind of an exciting time for the oceans to see how all this plays out. And there's, you know, there's just so much support, I think, for, you know, environmental protection, which I think is great because it is really important. 
I mean, finally, what is there to sort of look out for in future? I mean, China's already conquered the Marianas Trench. Uh, what next, or what should we what should we be watching for in the deep seas? Uh, Tiffany, maybe you first. The topics that we covered, I think, increasing activities in exploiting deep sea bed resources. I mean, we see this very clearly from the policy direction um, from Beijing that they this is something that they want to do, and also. You know, they very clearly state that they want to exploit resources, which isn't quite defined in their law on the law of the PRC on the exploration for and exploitation of resources in deep seabed area in 2016. So I think this is just a podcast of very long policy <laughs> names. <laughs> There's a market for like making abbreviations for this. <laughs> but yes, I mean, it's very much you know, given the policy direction top down that there's interest in exploiting these resources. We don't exactly know what these resources are going to be. Um, you know, it's most likely going to be sort of the non-marine life resources, such as the minerals. Um, China is obviously a, the dominant player in the global supply chain for like, uh, for example, for um, rare earth metals, for example. So th they very clearly have an interest in exploiting those resources and also, you know, continuing to maintain their dominance in these cases. Um, other areas that I anticipate China to be more active in, in sort of deep sea and adjacent issues are definitely in the polar regions. I mean, we've seen this very clearly. Again, you know, we've seen this very much top down. It's the polar regions sort of fit within what we know about China's broader global ambitions. You know, they clearly, clearly says that they, they aspire to be a polar great power, which as a near Arctic state is to be a polar great power. I mean, that's maybe a little bit of a stretch, but I think the language they use very much invokes this picture of competition, right? Like great power competition over these spheres. Um, so we do know that they see these polar regions as very consequential to sort of the strategic, economic, scientific interests, for example. Um, and we see them increasingly developing capabilities to pursue these intentions as well. Um, in the scientific space, we're seeing developments of icebreakers, nuclear-powered icebreakers, um, submersibles, man-and-unmanned uh, man vehicles. So they're very much, you know, trying to pursue their interest in the maritime commons because they do kind of see that as their rightful inheritance almost of the earth, right? They see, they very much talk about um, some of these polar regions as the common heritage of mankind, very much echoing um, UN language there as well. And strategically, we've seen it kind of incorporated into Xi Jinping's sort of idea of a polar silk road under the Belt and Road Initiative. So there's kind of a um, intention, grand plan, vision, if you will, um, behind what's going on a lot of, on the ground in terms of, um, you know, diplomatic, scientific, economic activities. And Tabitha. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, Tiffany's response was great. And I guess I would say that one of the challenges is going to be not so much what is China going to try to do next, you know, like in terms of exploitation or naval development or, you know, whatever. But I think thinking about China's role in how we govern the global ocean commons is, is going to be really challenging. You know, so there's a lot of, you know, things that we didn't even talk about here that I think are all, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, these, all these factors, are, it's kind of what makes ocean governance really interesting, but it's also what makes it really challenging. Um, I mean, it's just such a, a big place. So you've got, you know, like 
you know, a lot of challenges in terms of security and in, in enforcement and, you know, navigation and communication, you know, in addition to the, you know, like the, the resource extraction that we've talked about, um, regulating, you know, fisheries, all that, that kind of stuff, you know, the impact of climate change in the ocean, plus, you know, like all the solutions that there can be in terms of carbon sequestration and, you know, wetland areas and mangroves. And so, you know, like China can play a role in all of those things. Um, but I, you know, like, oh, there's also, you know, just like shipping and um, marine sand. That's one that is like, that's a really important issue in Cambodia right now is the extraction of marine sand to make glass. And there, there are so many different issues that, you know, I think in pretty much all of them, China's going to be a player. I think one of the, like, kind of the commonalities in terms of all these challenges is going to be um, a China that is so authoritarian in nature. Um, and we always have to remember, I mean, I think for, um, you know, for all of the, um, you know, like, rhetoric about the importance of environmental issues, which I think is great, I think we still have to remember that for the Chinese central authority, survival of the party is still the most important thing. Um, and so this is maybe kind of a cynical view, but, um, you know, uh, Tiffany mentioned the common heritage of humanity or common heritage of, of mankind. Um, and that is a position that um, China has supported. It's, you know, very much in opposition to this idea of like freedom of the seas in which any individual, you know, can just like take whatever they want, first come, first serve. And, you know, I think this this um, common heritage of humanity, like the idea that, you know, like we use the sea for peaceful purposes and, you know, we all benefit uh, from, you know, like stewardship of, of the sea. It's very similar to their notion of a community of a shared future for mankind, that, you know, this slogan that China uses, um, which is a part of their Belt and Road Initiative. Like, so they, they talk about that, like, so for, you know, like maritime issues, the 21st century um, maritime Silk Road. And, you know, there's also this other, when we think about environmental issues, um, this term ecological civilization. And so when we think about what all of this means, it's, you know, China wants to be the leader in developing you know, these, um, I think, solutions to environmental problems, not necessarily always because we need solutions to environmental problems, but because it adds to the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. And so, you know, in some ways, it, you know, like, and, and I, like I said, this is kind of cynical, but um, it really is a problem to be working with a country that lacks transparency. Um, and, you know, like, there, there are a bunch of people in China that care about the environment, but you know, their voices are, you know, kind of being commandeered by the government. Um, the government wants to be kind of seen as, as the hero. And, you know, if you're in opposition to that, I mean, it makes it just really hard for other states, you know, like especially other developing countries who want China's green technology. It's, it's really hard for them to dispute, you know, what China's intentions are. That, I think, is, is like the, the real challenge. Um, when you're working with a country that's concerned about its own survival and will use um, propaganda to support that, you're not going to get real accurate information about environmental damage because it's not going to look good for the party. Um, and you're not going to solve any of these problems unless you have real information about the problem. Tabitha Tiffany, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Tiffany Ma and Tabitha Mallory, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. The editing is by Andy Hazel. Our 
producer is Wing Kwong. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.